Welcome back to another episode of Focus on K-12, EdTech and the Education Experience. I'm your host, Doug Conopelko, Education Strategist for CDWG, and I am beyond excited to bring you Dr. Chris Emden from the Teachers College at Columbia University. Uh, this is somebody I've looked up to for a long time. Um, his book, uh, For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood and the Rest of Y'all Too, really had an important place uh, in, my, in my heart and in my work. So uh, without further ado, let's dive in. My name is Christopher Emden. I currently serve as a professor of science and education at Teachers College at Columbia University. Um, at that institution, I'm also the associate director of the Institute for Urban and Minority Education. And um, you know, I'm a scholar, a thinker, a writer, but most importantly, I'm a teacher. At, at the core of all I do is being a K-12 educator who does work today to inform other K-12 educators. Well, Chris, thanks for being here. I know uh, you've obviously got uh, the book from a few years ago for white folks who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too about reality pedagogy um, and a lot of other things. But uh, you know, I appreciate the time you're taking today. I know we've talked about that this book has been uh, you know, really impactful for me in my work. And where I want to start is where, you know, you start in your work, which is that the, the Dr. Chris Emden professor that we see today, right, is different than the Chris who walked into the classroom, the Mr. Emden who walked into the classroom that first day and that first year. So talk to me a little bit why you included that in the book and why that was like an important part of the journey. You know, radical vulnerability honesty and authenticity are the three things that are at the essence of being an effective educator. I think you have to be able to enter into any space, whether it's with young folks in K through 12 or it's in higher education, or if it's a speech with a recognition that people learn more about your missteps than they do about your image of perfection. People learn more about you being honest and truthful about your journey than they do about you sort of constructing some sort of like perfect narrative. And if you are authentic, authenticity can be the connector across a bevy of cultural divides. Because if your culture varies from mine, but you're authentically you, and I show up being authentically me, our cultures may not immediately connect to each other, but our authenticity becomes currency. And so for me, if I wanted to construct a book or construct a lesson plan, I always begin with those three tenets. How can I share my truth? How can I say I'm not perfect? How can I be honest about my journey? And how can I say I'm learning with you to be better? And so, you know, that's why I wrote the book that way, but that's also how I show up. Like, you know, you're always gonna get the same Chris, right? Whether you get me on a street corner or you get me in an Ivy League institution, I'm always gonna show up as myself. I think when you show up as yourself and show up sitting in and with your mistakes, but also with a spirit of always wanting to be better, to make the world better, people are more likely to learn from you. So for me, it was, it was not just a writing strategy, it was a pedagogical strategy, but also it was a life, a, a life mantra. You know, I, I, I show up in my truth because my truth, my authenticity, my honesty, and my radical vulnerability are the anchor through which my identity is tethered. Yeah, and, and you, can't, you can't have those moments until you've learned those lessons yourself or learn them from people who have gone through those and shared them. So, so that's why when we were talking about, or when you were just talking about, you know, having the authenticity, right, to be able to show up as yourself, those folks who are there either sitting in your class, watching your talk, uh, obviously that was very, very popular, the TED Talk, 
But you know, those things are important to weave into the narrative each time because when those people come to a crossroads and they don't have the experience yet to pull from, they may be able to pull from the experience that you shared yes. because you were vulnerable, because you were authentic and were able to share that with them. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, hip hop lyrics is by is a Jay-Z lyric. And, he, and, and the lyric is simply is like, Hope did that, so hopefully you won't have to go through that, right? And like, you know, it, 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 to me, it's one of his most profound lyrics because he was talking about his life experiences as, you know, a street hustler in Brooklyn before he became a sort of like mogul. Um, but he was not glorifying his past practice. He literally was saying like, I hope did that, so hopefully you won't have to go through that. I go through my experiences, my challenges, my struggles in vivid detail so that when you have those same situations, you make better decisions. And so for me, it's like, I, I try to operate that way. I ain't saying I'm hope, like I'm not the Jay-Z education by any stretch, <laughs> but I do try to be honest about the mistakes I've made so that educators have options. Like I did walk into a classroom going one-on-one -on -one with a student because my ego was bruised. Worst thing you could ever do. It's, it's, it's the key to you being effective. So the next time an educator is like, man, a student says something and then you wanna go back and forth, you, you take them like, oh man, Chris Hemden messed up with that one. Oh man, like, you know, I remember when Doug was saying when he did that, now let me, let me be reflective in a moment and take another option. Because the thing is this, those small missteps, if the wrong decisions are made, can shape your teacher identity for the rest of your career. There are educators who are in the classroom right now, 25 years later, who had an interaction with a young person, reacted the wrong way. Everybody thought that you were this mean person. That became a piece of your identity. And then you, you, built your, you built your teacher identity around your worst moment. And so for me, it's like, don't build your teacher identity on your worst moment. When the worst moments come, make better decisions, have an out, and then construct your identity on your best moments. You want to make the teacher that you are be the version of yourself that's the best one for young people. Like the one that makes young folks smile, the one that makes them want to learn from you, the one that makes them want to be vulnerable in front of you, Carve your identity, build the, build your teacher identity on the bedrock of your best moments, right? And when you have your worst moments, slip out of them to construct your best self. And I think if all educators operated with that space, it also means then that you know, you're gonna have a worst moment. There's no, like, listen, I've been awful in the classroom. Like, see, students have not learned from me. I've had like lessons that, you ever have one of those lessons, Doug, where it's like 15 minutes in and you're like, Crickets, and you're like, okay, so what do I do with these children now? I've had many of those. Uh, you know, like I've had so many bad moments. And I think that my approach to teaching and learning, like what I write about and for white folks, and, and most importantly, what I write about in my new book, Ratchademic, Reimagining Academic Success, like that book is filled with nuggets of wisdom based on me reflecting on my worst moments. And the whole approach to reality pedagogy an approach to being academic, equally rational and academic, that those things are based on me being reflective about my worst moments so that I can carve out a teacher identity that makes me be my best self for young people. Right, and, and we can absolutely harp on those, those worst moments, but if we're not reflective, if we're not thinking back on how would I change that, how would I improve that so when it happens the next time, then we're stuck there, right? And I, I, I shared with you that, that story, right, of where, getting in those power struggles like you were talking about where student says something you're thinking well I'm a teacher I got to say something that's better right or I got to do something more and and you get in that power struggle and student you know in this case said 
well, you, you better never come to my neighborhood. And I said, why would I go to your neighborhood? And then years later, still thinking about that exact moment, right? Thinking this is 10 year plus years ago now, right? 12 years ago, still thinking about that moment. And like, what a missed opportunity to say, well, I'm going to, like, I'm, I'm coming there and I'm not coming there because you're like, because we're in this power struggle. I'm coming there because I want to learn more about you so that I can reach you here. And singing that out loud to young people, right? Like, that's the piece that we missed, Doug. It's like saying out, like being vulnerable and then expressing your vulnerability out loud so you can be seen by the young person. And so they can, and so they, they and so that you can truly see them. And like, you know, two things that came out of the story you just shared that I think are essential for any good teacher is grace and humility. You know, like grace extended to young people, of course, that you give them second chances and you give them other opportunities, but grace for yourself. Like that, that even though you had a bad lesson, even though you had a bad day, even though you had a bad experience in your teacher education program, that does not define who you're going to be as an educator. And, you know, you have to extend grace to yourself. I forgive myself for my bad day because I'm going to make sure my next day is better. I forgive myself for learning the worst things from the previous teachers I had because going forward, I'm going to be the best teacher I can be. I forgive myself for the mistakes I've made because I'm humble enough, humility, because I'm humble enough to recognize that I'm always a work in progress. One of my favorite thinkers and scholars is Maxine Green. And one of Maxine Green's lines that has always spoken to me, um, I still miss her to this day, is I am who I am not yet. And if, educated, if every educator operated saying, I am who I am not yet, I am the teacher I imagine myself to be, even if I am not the best teacher in this moment, um, that, that I, it means I'm perpetually moving towards being a better self. I never arrive, right? I'm always in process. And in that process, I operate with grace, humility, and, and, and radical vulnerability. So I'm going to take it to the Jay-Z lyric. Um, obviously, hip-hop ed has been a big part of, of your life. There you go, um, <laughs> of your work. And what I, what I love that you did there, and it's probably subtle for folks who are listening, but this is where I want to, where I want to go with it is you, you used that lyric, not for like a surface level. Oh, I just want to talk about hip hop, right? You used it for, this is the lesson. And because of my knowledge there, I can connect the dots to get us where we need to go. So, so take me through like sort of the deeper, better side, right? Of hip hop ed. That's, I love that question, Doug. So thank you for asking it, man. You know, what I try to let folks understand is that hip hop is not rap music. Rap music is an element of hip hop and it is, you know, it, it is text to be engaged with. And it is in many ways a connector and a hook, but hip hop is a culture. That's a culture that's rich in schema in practices and philosophies and understandings and dispositions and orientations and philosophies and frameworks and ideologies. Like it is a, it is a, it is a, a corpus of rich and complex ways of looking at the world. And so you relegate a complex and deep and profound culture to just one small artifact of it. You miss so much. So if I use a rap lyric, the rap lyric is supposed to be the portal that I dive deeply into to open up this wormhole of depth and knowledge and understanding. And if I only just open the door and shut it right away, 
it becomes really superficial. It becomes really layered. And young folks read that for what it is. They read it as pandering. They read it as, oh, you're just trying to be cool. But when you open up that door and then dive deeply in, so that, that Jay-Z lyric was quoted not just as an empty and surface reference point, but Jay-Z was identifying a theoretical framework for radical vulnerability that I can't find in the existing literature. Dewey does not offer me the experiential knowledge of Jay-Z of urban America and the complexities of the experiences of black and brown bodies in urban America who are going through particular struggles and challenges and have to make decisions about what is right or wrong based on their socioeconomic condition. Like, like John Dewey just can't give me that. Vygotsky just ain't got the, he ain't got the insight, my G. So I might need to go to a rap lyric and I, have to, I might need to go to a rap artist. I might need to go to a rap philosopher to get a deeper insight and understanding. You know what I mean? Like, I may need to be able to look not just at hip hop music, but look at b-boy and say, well, what are folks doing with their bodies? Why is the body so important? Why is the body a mode of, of expression? Why do battles happen where folks are competing with love? You know, why is a DJ using technology? How can I bring the technology of the DJ into the classroom? You know, people have relegated a complex and deep culture to such a superficial, it's that iceberg thing, right? Like this little cap of the ice beneath the surface is so much. And I think for hip hop education and for the hip hop ed movement, what, what all we're trying to do is say, we have a whole lexicon library framework for teaching and learning that can help us all be better, but you've not even scratched the surface yet. It's not about utilizing hip hop because we love hip hop and you should too. It's about respecting and honoring our rich cultural artifact that if interrogated deeply can help us to be better educators. You know, MCs, Rakim, one of my favorite MCs says, cause to me, MC means move the crowd. And Rakim is a master teacher. He has history, uh, social analysis, uh, English, poetry, all caps like just put it crap in his rhymes and it's a, to me the MC means move the crowd and I had a conversation where I came I was like what do you mean by move the crowd I said man when I when I'm with an audience I want to move them physically but I also want to move them emotionally if I can move them physically and emotionally I have their hearts and I said that's teaching teaching is about being able to physically move the student out of their comfort zone but emotionally move them to intellectually see themselves as better there's no there's no text there's no framework that offers that kind of insight um, unless I go to Rakim. So for me, man, um, let's not use hip hop superficially. It's cute, I get it. And the cute stuff is great. The viral videos are awesome. But, but, but go beyond that and you, you leave your experience with the culture, a better, smarter, more thoughtful educator. Right, and, and if we wanna talk about radical vulnerability, right, you absolutely can bring up, you know, Brene Brown, when that's appropriate for the crowd, but knowing that when you're trying to, uh, you know, connect with a very different crowd, right? They're not, you know, your students are, aren't going to care about Brene Brown, right? And, and that's not to say anything against Brene Brown, right? Um, and in the same way, you know, you mentioned Vygotsky, right? When you're talking about moving the crowd, right? We could talk about the zone of proximal development, but if Rakim is saying, hey, we're talking about moving the crowd, that's how I'm going to connect that better down to my students. That's how I'm going to be able to, you know, we talk about wrapping things in, in analogies and context and how that makes it much more powerful when you can make those connections. So 
while some of those ideas are out there, right? Like I, I look at it as, uh, you know, that it is about moving the hearts, right? I can, I can show people uh, the, the strategy from somebody from 200 years ago, uh, and it could still be totally appropriate and work really well. But if I can't connect that in a way that's meaningful, then it's not going to matter. I'm giving you, I'm giving you all the finger snaps right now, my G, because <laughs> that, that's it. Look, all great theories for how we engage with each other are deeply interconnected. There are slivers of truth in all avenues. It's about the educator being savvy enough to understand what to use when they need to use it and for understanding how you can use one and, and, and merge it with another to be stronger. I, I, theoretically, I always love these, these French cats called the bricoleurs, right? And the bricoleurs are so ill because what they would do is like, folks will build these really dope, amazing walls of concrete or they'll build this like wall based on like whatever tool they had. And the bricoleurs were dope because they would build their walls based on whatever tools I have at hand. So if I'm gonna bring a wall, I'm gonna build this wall. It's like, it's gonna be brick, concrete, cement, blast, wood. And so they would take all the tools they had at their disposal to construct their walls. And what they ended up happening was the walls constructed by the bricolers were not, not, were not only just as sturdy as other walls, but they were more beautiful. They were more complex, they were more layered. They offered more, not just in utility, but in practicality and in aesthetics. And I think all educators should see themselves as bricolers. Like, you know, when I go to teach a lesson, I'm utilizing like seven books. I, I'm, I'm using like the, the teacher's manual, this thing I found online, this manual that went out of print, this one that everybody said is useless, and this like hip hop lyric. And I'm, I'm, take, I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing from each of them to construct this web, to, to this, braid, this braid of beautiful lesson plan that I go to offer my students, right? You, young folks can't eat the same meal all the time. They'll get bored and tired of the meal. So the responsibility of the educator is to make pedagogical gumbo. Throw it all in there, mix it up real good, then offer it up. And I think it's in the sitting with the beauty of the mix and the complexity and the layered parts of it. And nothing is useless, it's all useful. It's that mentality that allows us to be our best selves in the classroom. So take me then to we, we, we laid the foundation for hip hop ed, right? Talked about, it's not about that service level. We've got to take, use what's around us. Give me maybe an example of like a, a, a hip hop ed more, I guess, I don't want to say themed because that, that again is that service level, but give me, give me an example of, you know, your science and technology, uh, I'm science and technology. So, so, so like an example of something you've seen done really well in the classroom that embraces what you're talking about. You know, the best example I could give is Science Genius. Um, a couple years back, I partnered up with Jizza from the Wu-Tang Clan. And I'm like, yo, Jizza, like, these kids don't like science, my G. And, and he's like, I love science. And I'm like, people don't, people don't know that you love science. People don't know that hip hop loves science. So what if we went into classrooms and we did these rap battles, but they'd be science-themed rap battles. And so young folks would have to write rhymes, but it's about science content. But it can't be superficial. We need to have a really good rubric. <laughs> so, so, so that you hold high expectations. Like you have to have at least three or four scientific concepts. It has to be scientifically accurate. Mathematical theories are important. It has to be applied to real life. So it's an academically rigorous rubric for constructing a science rap. And then you compete against each other to make sure there's sort of scientific integrity and there's scientific argumentation. But it's in performing in a culturally aligned way. And science genius, man, kids would rap battle. 
they select who the best rap battlers were, then they compete with each other in the school, then the winners from each school competed with science rap genius battlers, winners in other schools. They came down to Columbia and battled. And what we did through Science Genius was had something that had scientific integrity, pedagogical authenticity, and then cultural relevance. And, you know, so, it, it, and, and when you have those three things done, it's science, but it's also hip hop and it's also rigorous. And, it's all, and so Science Genius is a perfect exemplar. If anybody who's listening is interested in bringing Science Genius to their city or to their school district, you know, hit me up at info at chrisemden.com and you could be a Science Genius district. And Science Genius now exists in New York City. We've had Science Genius in, in Houston, Science Genius in Toronto, Science Genius in, uh, in, in uh, Calgary, Canada. Um, we have Science Genius in Jamaica. But across the globe, people are doing hip hop science battles or reggae science battles and young people are learning, but it's not superficial. And it's not like, let them just, you know, sing and dance. Um, and I think that that's a great exemplar of how we could bring STEM to hip hop in an authentic way that reflects the tenets of hip hop ed. So you mentioned cultural relevance there. Uh, I know that when we talk about reality pedagogy, it's taking cultural relevance to, to another level, right? There's definitely a difference. Uh, people's, you know, maybe buzzword bell goes off a little bit when they hear cultural relevance. So tell me about reality pedagogy and how that's uh, different than cultural relevance in and of itself. Yeah, you know, I, I love the concept, the theory behind cultural relevance. The, the champion of that work is somebody I, is my, is like my, I call her my academic mama, you know, Gloria Latson Billings. Um, and there are, there are a couple of iterations of cultural relevance and culturally sustaining work. Shout out to Django Paris, Sami Alim, um, you know, all, all the folks out there doing that really dope work around cultural relevance, Carol Lee, like a bunch of OGs. Um, for me, as a, as a practitioner, I found limitations in the implementation of the theory of cultural relevance because I didn't have like, okay, tell me what to do. Like, align to the culture of young people, you know, focus on race and culture like I was like okay that's dope I get that but what do I do with these kids and so um for me it reality pedagogy became almost like a practical way to implement culture relevance while adding one other layer to the idea of culture meaning like I don't want a teacher to perceive or to project what they think is the culture of young people so reality it becomes there's a difference between your, your perception of culture and someone's reality and lived experience. So reality pedagogy begins with saying, let the young people articulate for you what their culture is. Don't assume what their culture is. If your perception of culture is going through the filter of your lens and perceptions of young people, you might think you're culturally relevant and be off base. And that's even worse than not using a culture at all. So reality pedagogy begins with like cogenerative dialogues, structured conversations with young people about the realities of their lived experiences where they give the educator direct feedback on how they're experiencing the instruction so you can construct the next lesson together with young people that reflects their reality. Not my projections of culture, but their lived experience. Um, I think that's essential. And then I go through a, a particular set of structures for how do you do these dialogues? I don't wanna leave a teacher out there and say, okay, talk to kids, but how? So there's a whole set of things in the book that's next to you there about how to engage in those dialogues. Um, co-teaching, you know, how do you get insight into the reality of young people by allowing them not just to be passive consumers of information, but rather producers of it? You gotta let kids teach. If young folks don't have the, that, that power 
to be at the front of the classroom and deliver information. They're not only teaching you about themselves, but they should be able to be, also be teaching you content. That the student sits where the uh, teacher would be and the teacher sits where the student will be and they learn from each other. So co-gens, co-teaching, cosmopolitanism, um, building community, um, context, content, competition, curation. I walk through a set of practices that allow the educator to get insight into the lived experience of young folks in situ right now to use a philosophy of cultural relevance, a practice of reality pedagogy. You put those two things together and it helps you be more effective. So I want to go one more place with you before we have to wrap, which yeah. is, you know, you talked about co-generative dialogues and a really popular thing to do is say, let's go over our classroom norms together, right? Let's build our classroom norms together. But the difference that I see, and I'll let you really go into it more, is that when you're talking about co-generative dialogues versus we're going to build norms together, when I'm building norms together with my class, I still have where I want to go and what I want them to look like. And I'm just trying to force buy-in. So how are cogens different then? There's a superficiality in dialogue that it's about convincing someone else to join you on what your perception is, right? Like that it's almost, it's coercion. Um, it, it, but, it's, but it's coercion through sort of like a fabricated democracy. It's like, I'm gonna try to convince you that I'm right. And look, I'm listening to you, aren't I? Aren't I? Aren't I? Oh no, that's right, that's wrong, until it's where I want. A cogenerative dialogue is, is, is really about co-constructing the learning space with the young person. It's about experimenting with their ideas and then being vulnerable enough to say, did I do that right? Was that wrong? Uh, and the cogenerative dialogue is not just about building classroom norms like in the beginning of the academic year or like after your three-day vacation, but it's literally weekly or bi-weekly or monthly, you figure out the structure, dialogues where you're checking in with the students about, hey, by the way, guys, I did this thing you said, or I tried this thing. Does it work? Does it not? If it works, should I keep doing it? If it doesn't, what can I do differently next time? So essentially, with a cogenerative dialogue, the young people are the teachers. Your professional development is with the young people. It's not some outside party. You're not having Chris Emden come in uh, to give PDs. You're not paying a consultant. You're creating an infrastructure within your classroom where the young people are giving the teacher the professional development on a weekly, bi-weekly, or monthly basis where there's a sort of cycle of co-constructing approaches to instruction, but most importantly, a cycle of co-constructing knowledge, co-constructing rules of engagement, co-constructing culture, shared culture. And I think that that's very different than convincing young folks to be like you or convincing young folks to be like you as you are trying to be like the teachers you had, but rather this sort of like, um, you know, this nimbleness, this, uh, this, this um, dexterity, that's, that's, you know, this dance, you know, teaching and learning is a dance, bro. Like it's, it's, it, it, the teacher is dancing with the young person and they're both leading. Um, and then they create this space where everyone is comfortable enough to want to learn from each other. And that's the work. Yeah, I'm brought back to conversation I had with Sharif Elmecki, where he talked about, you know, if I get a new haircut and I go into school tomorrow, kids are going to notice. And right away. if I'm really working on my practice, then kids should notice. So if they're involved in that change to my practice, then they're going to notice. Whereas if I just, if I go see Chris Emden speak, and then I come back to my classroom, but I do everything the same, 
then I haven't learned, I haven't grown, and I'm not bringing my class forward with me. Uh, yes, I mean, point blank period. And by, by the way, shout out to Reef. Reef is my guy. Um, what a thoughtful, um, reflective, and like um, honest practitioner. So I, I love Reef. I want to give a shout out to Reef. I'm glad you had him on the show. But, but yeah, exactly right. I think, listen, my, my take is always this. Anything that you can consume, you can also create. If young folks are consuming curriculum, they can construct curriculum. If they're consuming lesson plans, they can create lesson plans. If they're receiving your instruction, they can also give instruction. And it's about creating a structure to allow them to be able to also create what you're forcing them to consume. That's it. We're there, That's man. It, bro. I appreciate you. Thanks for being on. I love the conversation. Nah, it's been an amazing conversation. Let me just tell everybody out here, like, you know, if you have for white folks who teach in the hood, I'm glad you have that. Um, I'd love to have conversations with you about it. Hit me up on the social medias at Acrescendant. I love when folks keep the PD going through Twitter or Instagram. Um, but I also have a new book out. To me, it's like for white folks, part two plus some. Um, the title of the book is Rashademic. Um, it is currently available for pre-order wherever books are sold. It builds on those fundamental principles, but gives a larger, more philosophical, but also like a driver to improve pedagogy. Um, so Rashademic Reimagine Academic Academic Success, please pick that up. Um, thank you so much, Doug, for creating space for us to be able to engage. Um, I can't wait for some point to do a part two. Thanks for joining us today on Focus on K-12 EdTech and the Education Experience. If you enjoyed today's show, please feel free to like, subscribe, and click the little bell so that you get notified whenever we post a new episode. Or reach out to me on Twitter, at dconopelco. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time as we focus on K-12.